So a while back we did a series on the church, and um, when we did that we looked at um, some factors about how we see the church. We tried to describe the church in the way that we see it described in Scripture. And this evening we are starting a series that is kind of related to that, but we're going to take a, 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 a look from a different angle. We're going to look at what God did by the power of his Holy Spirit to move his church from a small gathering of 120 people in an upper room to having 2.3 billion people claiming to be followers of Jesus today. And so as we go through the series, we'll look at some of the history of the church, um, among other things, so that we can understand better how it is that we came to be here where we are today. So this evening we'll start off by touching on how the church came about, how it came into existence, and we will try to answer the questions like, did the church just appear out of nowhere? Um, how did it happen? And, and then why do we need to be in a group? Can't we just do this thing by ourselves? Isn't it possible for us to be Christians as individuals? So let me start by asking you a question. I had some slides this evening, but we're actually having problems with the projector, so it might just cut out, so I had to leave the slides, unfortunately. We'll probably have it going by next week. But let me start by asking you this question. Why do you think it's important to know where the church comes from? It's not a question that you think about regularly, or ever, in some cases. <laughs> But why do you think it's, it's kind of valuable for us to understand where the church actually comes from? Somebody maybe want to shoot an answer out. Hmm, that's a good one. Never despise small beginnings. There's a lesson in there for us. Anybody else want to shoot one out? Yes, that's a very good point. Sometimes we do things and we don't even know why we do it. Like we ask ourselves the questions, why? why is the church designed in the way that it is? Is there a reason behind it? And that's maybe one of the things we'll look at as we go through. There's a quote that I read that's kind of related to an answer for that thought. The quote goes, is it, import it is important that we know where we come from because if you do not know where you come from, then you don't know how you came to be where you are and if you don't know where you are, then how can you truly know where you're going? And if you don't know where you're going, you're very probably going in the wrong direction. <laughs> An interesting quote that I read. Now, I think in the context of the life of the church and where the church is at now, it's helpful for us to know where and why we come from, if that makes sense. Because it will obviously help us to know which way to go as we face the challenges in our time today. And the church is facing a lot of challenges. So here's another question for you. What do you think the challenges are that we as the church face today? Possibly another question that we don't think about regularly. I know that the season that we are in right now with this pandemic has presented the church 
among so many other organizations with so many different challenges. Um, but even amongst that, there are certain challenges for us as the church that kind of stick around. I, I, I read an article lately that, uh, that this author outlined what he thought were the four biggest challenges that are faced by the church today. So the first challenge that he said is that we live in a society that is overwhelmed by individualism. He says, be you and be true to yourself are society's favorite slogans. And it seems like now, today, in the age that we are living in, the first and the greatest commandment of this age, of this age of individualism, is that. Be true to yourself. Forget about what anybody else says. And the, this, the problem that this poses for us as the church is that God's word actually challenges the individual. God's word challenges the me with us. And then it sets the us before God. So that's the first challenge, is that society is very individualistic in its expression today. The second, question, the second um, challenge that he raised was this, is that there's this idea or this thought now that religion is private and personal. And it's something to be kept away from the public square. And from this challenge, Christians now see that they only see their faith in terms of its effect on their own personal lives, not the idea that it contains overall truthfulness, that there is an ultimate truth within it. So that was the, the, the second one that he identified. The third one is that he said, an increasing number of people see Christian standards as not only old-fashioned, but also extreme or dangerous. So the, the morals and the standards that the church has with has held over ages and ages, now are seen as things that are extreme and even dangerous. And the fourth one that he identifies is that people don't trust big groups anymore. <laughs> um, people tend to now shy away from being affiliated to some group, especially a group that is well-established, and that probably also stems from this individualistic way of seeing things. You know, if, if we as the church want to continue to be relevant in this age, then we need to understand who we are, I think. And we need to understand what God desires of us, among other things, um, why we are where we are now, so that we can know the direction that we need to take from this point onwards. Here's another question for you. What do you think most people think when you say the word church? What do you think? Let me hear some of your ideas. Building. Building. What else would you think? Good, eh? Strict. Ah. Tradition. 
a way to control the masses. That's a good one. You know, I, th- I think when, when most people hear the word church, they probably think of building. Um, when I think of people who are not even what we would call nominal Christians, they would just think of a building as a place where those people meet. And maybe it's a fancy building or a simple building where believers gather, but most simply think, when they think church, they think building and gatherings or services on a Sunday when they hear the word church, as well as all of the other things that we've mentioned now. But I think, and I hope most of us understand now, that biblically speaking, a church is much more than just a building. In fact, we should rather say that the church is not a building at all, but it's a group of people who have been called to be together. The early Christian church had no buildings, at least not in the sense of what we would consider church buildings today. In fact, within the first 100 years of Christianity, Christians were often persecuted And as a result of this persecution, they would often meet secretly, a lot like the way Christians are having to meet in places in the Far East today. And then they would meet in homes of people. But then in the history of the church, as the influence of Christianity spread, eventually buildings that would be dedicated to worship were established and became what we know today as churches. And so in this sense, then, the church consists of people, not buildings. The fellowship, the worship, the ministry are all conducted by people, not buildings. Church structures like this beautiful one that we find ourselves in here in Pinans, they only facilitate the role of God's people. But the building itself doesn't fulfill it. Now, beyond being believed to be a building, the church still has, um, as it has in its history, still actually has to fight to survive. When we look historically, there's this um, late theologian called David Pawson. He outlined for us, in the first 400 years of the history of the church, there were three major battles that the church needed to fight. And we can actually still see those battles replicating themselves today. And in each one of those battles, the church has gained victory. The first one that he mentions is that it was a spiritual battle, was the first battle that the church needed to fight. And that was a spiritual battle with the Jews. The second one was a mental battle which began with the Greeks. And the third one was a physical battle, which began with the Romans. And so there were these three battles that the early church needed to fight, and they won, which is why the church has survived under the leadership and the growth of Jesus Christ to this day. Now, with this in mind, I'd like us to go to the Bible now. And look at the moment that we understand that the church was born. And so we're going to look at, again, um, Acts chapter 2, 
and we'll read just the first four verses there, verses 1 to 4. Maybe one of you guys could read that out for us. But the context for this is that Jesus had ascended, and the disciples were now alone, and they had chosen a a replacement for Judas. And so there were about 120 followers now, and they were all gathered together in what we believe was an upper room, which was big enough for all of them, a place somewhere in Jerusalem. And they were waiting for the promise of the Father to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, as Jesus described it for them. So let's read those first four verses of chapter 2. Maybe someone can read it out for us. If you've got that app on your phone. First four verses, thank you. So the 120 of these first Christians, they gathered together in this upper room somewhere, and there had been a lot of discussion amongst them about who would best be able to fill the vacancy that Judas had left. Judas, after having betrayed Jesus, we know that he went off somewhere and he hung himself. And so besides this discussion that this 120 believers were having, not much was happening amongst them. The task that they had of reaching people for the kingdom was something that seemed beyond them. They seemed that this, they felt that this was too great a task for them to complete. And so probably amongst them, there was very little money, not a lot of people to show for three years worth of ministry, only 120 of them. There was probably a lot of fear amongst them. And outside of their meeting place where they were there that evening, there was a whole city of people with a culture that seemed to have very little tolerance for the message that Jesus had given to them. And so at this stage, nothing was happening in them or through them that would have an impact on this world that was outside of this room that they were meeting in. And so they were waiting for something. They were waiting for something that Jesus had promised them would come, but they weren't actually sure of what that experience would be like. And what they did know was that Jesus said that they would receive power, this kind of power, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and then after this power had come upon them, then they would be able to be witnesses, not only in the Jerusalem that was outside of this room that they were in, but also in Judea, which was the bigger region, and Samaria, which is beyond that, and then even to the ends of the earth. And so in their minds was this task, how do we get to the ends of the earth? Knowing that there was something that Jesus was going to give them that would enable them to do this. And so that's what they're waiting for. And that's what those four verses describe there for us. So the time that this happened was the time of Pentecost. It was kind of, it was a, kind of like a public holiday. Um, And so a lot of people, like people who flocked to Cape Town um, over the holidays, (laughs) Jerusalem was a place where people flocked to over this time. So the city was packed with people. 
this festival of Pentecost was a, a Jewish festival and it would be held in Jerusalem. And so there was this big celebration in Jerusalem and the city would have been crammed with visitors who had come from many countries around there. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 5, we're told that they had come from all the nations under heaven all around the world. So there were a lot of people in the city. And, and while all these people are outside, here is this group of believers in this upper room. And they're waiting. And then suddenly, as Helen read there for us, they hear the sound like a mighty rushing wind. And the sound wasn't centralized. It wasn't coming from one spot or one corner. The sound was everywhere, and it filled the entire house that they were sitting in. Now, I think it's important and helpful for us to note the kind of language that is being used here to describe what had happened on that day, it was kind of, I think it was the third hour, which would have been nine o'clock in the morning. Now, in many ancient languages, similar to today's modern languages, there are words that can have more than one meaning. Now, in this case, the word that is used here in the original language can mean either wind, as we understand wind that blows, or breath. Breath that could contain COVID-19. Now in Hebrew, in the original language, that word that is used there to describe this wind or breath is the word ruach. It's one of those words that sounds like what it means, ruach. Now in the ancient world, they thought of wind as being like breath, but on a large scale. And that's why it shouldn't surprise us that they use the same word to describe wind or breath or even spirit. Now, we have seen this way of describing wind and breath and spirit before in different parts of Scripture as well. And so we look very quickly now in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning where this particular word gets used in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And this is what chapter 2 verse 7 says. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the ruach. And the man became a living being. Now in Genesis here, God had created from the dust of the ground a skeleton with bones, with blood vessels, with skin over it, with hair, and all of the parts that would be needed to create a person. And so that corpse lay there lifeless and dead. And then we are told that God breathed into this lifeless corpse his own breath. And then Adam at that moment became a living being. Now, if you put what happened in Genesis chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 that we just read now, if you put that together, then we can see the significance of what is happening here. In Genesis chapter 2, there was a body, but it didn't have life in it yet. And God breathed life into that body so that Adam became a living being. 
And now here in Acts chapter 2, there's another body. Because the church is the body of Christ. But it was, until this point, a lifeless body. A corpse. It's like the corpse of Adam before God had breathed his ruach into it. And so God was, as we are reading here, breathing his life into his body, the church here. And as he does this, the church is born. The church comes alive. The church is empowered to be able to do what God wants us to do. Now, in theory, the Holy Spirit could have been poured out on the followers of Jesus, even if they weren't gathered together. The Holy Spirit would have been well able to meet each one of those believers in their own homes throughout the city of Jerusalem. And we know that there are times when the Holy Spirit is able to touch an individual who is alone, whether in prayer or whether in worship or whether in ministry to others. We know that that is possible. But I think the fact that the Spirit was given to a gathering of believers here for the very first time is not incidental. I think there's something for us to take from that. It emphasizes the importance of the church in what God wants to do in the world. The Holy Spirit is not only given to us as individuals, but very importantly, also to the gathered people of God. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he calls the church the temple of God. And that the Holy Spirit dwells in the midst of the church, which is his temple, and that's us. I think, unfortunately, um, today, many Christians who have been influenced by this individualism that we spoke about earlier, that perhaps comes from American culture in all of the media that we receive from them, live as though the church is useful, but kind of unnecessary. And so out of that kind of thinking that the church is useful but unnecessary comes the belief that as long as we have a personal relationship with God, everything else is secondary. And so out of that also then church life is not that important. I think that thinking flows out of this individualistic way of of seeing and interpreting the body of Christ, which is the church. You know, but we, but we see here in this illustration that we just looked at now that the community of God's people is central to God's work in the world. Us together, doing what God wants us to do, is very important in what Jesus is wanting to do in the world. And so I think we are challenged through this to consider our own participation in the fellowship, in the worship, in the mission of the church. And so having church is not an idea that someone thought would be cool to do. 
It is something that God himself designed. He brought together. And then he breathed his life, his breath, his ruach into it, into the church. That's us. So that we could walk in the good works that he has prepared for us in advance. Jesus wants us to live. He wants us to be alive. He wants us to live and move and have our being in him. And so as we, over the next few weeks, we'll look in greater detail at this journey that God has taken the church on so we can better understand ourselves, this body that we are part of. And perhaps as we think about that again, we can think about how God was able to, from 120 people in an upper room somewhere, bring this body of his to 2.3 billion people today who claim to be followers of him. And we can think about what our role is within that big plan that he has for his creation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you call us. Thank you that you set us apart. Thank you that you prepare for us works to do. Thank you, Lord, that you call us to be part of, of your body. And then when you call us as individuals, you place us inside of a body. Thank you that anyone who responds to you becomes a new creation, that the old is gone and that the new has come. Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you for this body. We thank you that it is you yourself, Jesus, who is growing us, who is nurturing us as a shepherd nurtures his sheep. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.